everyone. Welcome to Freedom International live stream. What, what are the questions that, uh, what are the situations that most parents, grandparents, aunties, uncles are most fear, fearful of when it comes to their children? What is it that sometimes it really stabs or pierces a parent's heart when it comes to their responsibilities with their children as they observe their children grow? So these are just some of the questions that as me as a parent and as a grandparent worries about. And I'm sure most of you, dear viewers and followers, are thinking about it. So today we have Dr. Lawrence Polivsky and on the topic of healing the world naturally and the current times. And he's not a stranger to most of you, especially if you have been caring for your children in a holistic way. And he has all the degrees that you could think of. So if some of you think that he's a fake doctor or a crack doctor or has no training or to be here and to talk and speak about anything about children's health, then just go to drpalevsky.com. He is a New York State school there, university trained, and many more certifications. So what I admire most with Dr. Palevsky is that he just didn't complete his medical degree, but he moved on to study some more and really found many ways and many avenues that he could really be that what Hippocrates said, do no harm. And I wish he was around when I was raising my child, but I guess I didn't do very well because I did, did not vaccinate him and now he's a parent. So welcome Dr. Larry Palevsky. So, Hi, thank, thank you, Grace. You. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, I look forward to the conversation with your community. Well, what is it that inspires you most as a pediatrician? And not just as a pediatrician, but you were a trail for me. You are a trailblazer in holistically taking care of children. Um, what what inspires me most is to watch a kid reach his or her optimal wellness, and to see the spirit of the child shine. And when I work with children, um, I, I address the spirit of them much more than I address the physical aspects of their, of their bodies. And so to me, to watch a child thrive in his or her environment, to go through the stages of development that are specific to the age at which they're, they're going through it, and to watch them shine and thrive and, and, and magically grow and tell stories and, and put things together and create ideas and, and be creative and imaginative and, and be explorative and, and wanna discover. Those are the things that I love to watch and inspire and support in children. And one of the, I mean, I do a lot of talking about nutrition and environment and, and vaccines and health and supplements. And, but the biggest thing that I love to do is to talk to parents about child development and what children need at each stage of their lives and how to talk to them and how to understand who they are and what they're not at certain ages. And um, to watch a, a toddler walk into a room and not be worried about, well, am I gonna like it? 
Am I going to find something I like to play with? Am I going to get hurt? Is something going to bother me here? What if I don't like it? What if I fall? What if I get child at that age doesn't care. A child at that age is open and willing to discover and, and to explore and to observe and to trial and error and experiment. And those are the aspects of children that we as adults need to remember we have as well. And so if we can look at children and understand their developmental stages and see that we still have them and that we can also thrive in discovering and exploring and observing and experimenting and being okay with the unknown. That's, that's the one fun thing about children is that they don't mind the unknown. They're willing to go into something and just see. Now, let's see what happens here. And if they fall, they'll cry maybe, but you know many times the children will go back and do it again and do it again and do it again. And that aspect of magical development is, is what I love to watch in kids. And, and I love to relay it back to parents that that's still within us if we can remember. It's our part of development as well. Beautifully expressed, Dr. Palewski, because I believe we all know how that is when we are around children's newborn babies. It gives, it makes us smile, and it just makes us even more younger. I think. Mm -hmm. And but in your practice, what have you been seeing now in terms of like what's your most uh, challenge when it comes to the different cases? If if that's still what you call it, cases or different challenges that the parents have in terms of diseases, illnesses, or symptoms? Um, the most challenging illnesses that I see in my practice are children who've been injured by vaccines uh, and overuse of uh, medications. And those are the most challenging because um, we, we really don't know the level to which the injection material has entered into their cells and attached to their cell membranes and altered their electrical charges and changed their DNA and, and altered their mitochondria and you know, impaired cell-to-cell -cell communication and in, inflamed their, their immune system and augmented their, their adrenaline levels. And you know what it's done to impair their abilities to remove wastes and toxins uh, in the appropriate manners. And so um, I think those are the most difficult uh, because you know parents spend sometimes thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars on nutritional programs and therapies and and detoxification programs and homeopathy and IVs and and all sorts of, of interventions because they never stop trying to save their kid and recover their kids. But the most concerning is when you see those kids who remain nonverbal and hop mm -hmm. and jump all the time and you know uh, have physical stimulations and verbal stimulations and, and uh, you know, they're getting bigger and bigger, but they're not getting better and better. And uh, those, are, those are very challenging. And, and on top of that, what's challenging is the fact that um, these are parents who, who swear up and down that their children were injured by the injections. 
and those around them tell them that they don't know what they're talking about, that they had no experience, that they the doctors say that's not related, so therefore it isn't. Um, you know, I, I had a child a couple of months ago who I wrote a medical exemption for who was a neurotypical kid. And after a set of injections in October of 2019, December of 2019, and January of 2020, he regressed, he developed seizures, he lost balance, he lost coordination, he lost his speech, he couldn't even walk by himself. And I wrote a medical exemption explaining the, the, the deterioration and the New York State physician in the Department of Health said to me on the phone, well, we know vaccines had nothing to do with his neurological right. state. And, you know, it's like, I mean, this is what's difficult for these parents who who know firsthand. They have that experience right in front of them. And then all of a sudden they're told, uh, nope, had nothing to do with the shots because we know better. And that's pretty difficult. So what's your office, Dr. Palewski? Is do you still vaccinate kids, or how do you manage that? So um, the last time I offered vaccinations in my office was October of two thousand two, and so when I set up this practice that I have in a different facility than the one I had in from two thousand to two thousand two, I I made it clear that um, I was not going to offer them. But if parents wanted them, I wasn't going to tell them no. I was just going to say that if they really wanted them, they would have to go elsewhere to get them. But I, I wasn't. I wasn't saying to them, uh, if you vaccinate, you can't come to my office. No, um, it's their choice, and uh, hopefully, they're making an informed choice about uh, about whether or not that's what they want to do. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. I'll pass it on to Steve first so that all the, the rest can ask you questions. Wow. Wow. Thanks for being here, Dr. Pavleski. Um, it's a, I've watched you in front of uh, give testimony, and it's just incredible, uh, the information that you have. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, when a child's born, are they vaccinated right away? And, uh, you know, is the the whole toxicity thing is something can you demonstrate how poisons are toxic and vaccines are toxic and that affects cell function and that's why it's so detrimental to kids well steve i, I want to start in utero first because many many unborn fetuses are exposed to toxins before they even come out into the world because at least in the United States, uh, women are recommended to get the flu vaccine and the tetanus diphtheria pertussis, the Tdap vaccine during pregnancy. And you know, there, there's a number of articles in the scientific literature demonstrating that, um, that inflammation in utero has been shown to lead to um, neuropsychiatric and neurodevelopmental issues in the children uh, within the first 15 years of life. And so there's, there's no, nobody can question the statement that I'm going to make right now. Vaccinations are meant to cause inflammation in the body, period. They are meant to cause inflammation. That's, that's their direct effect in the body is to ignite an immune reaction 
so that there is an inflammatory response. And the question has never been answered, well, what are the effects of creating that inflammation in a pregnant woman? Does the inflammation remain? And how does that inflammation impact the growth and development of the unborn baby? And so a priori, before the baby's even born, there's an exposure to a, a, um, a willing introduction of inflammation. Right now, we know that when women are pregnant, they're going to be exposed to inflammation. They're going to breathe things in that inflame them. They're going to eat things. They're going to put materials on their skin. They're going to use their cell phones and their Wi-Fi and their laptops on their bellies, all of which is going to impart inflammation. Uh, they're going to take medications. They're going to drink. They're going to smoke. They're going to do all the things that women do even when they're pregnant. And, and so there's going to be a certain amount of inflammation that babies are exposed to. But the injection of the material is a horse of a different color. And so those babies are being exposed to inflammation that, that is more than likely going to remain constant throughout the remainder of the pregnancy. And again, there's no understanding of how that's impacting other than the fact that we know that increased inflammation in utero will lead to the potential for neurodevelopmental neuropsychiatric problems in kids. Then, on day one of life, the babies in, in many states in the, in the United States, not all, get an injection of vitamin K, which may often contain aluminum, which is a nanoparticle, polysorbate 80, which is an emulsifier. And the vitamin K shots predominantly contain egg protein or egg phospholipid and castor oil, which I have shown in the, in the literature, can cross-react with nuts and peanuts. And so I've seen tons of kids in the first year of life who were not vaccinated, who had no other vaccines other than the vitamin K injection. And during the first year of life, they tested positive for egg, nuts, and peanut allergies. And everyone turns around and says, well, where is that from? But no one's looking at the fact that the vitamin K injection not only has a catalyst like aluminum, which is a very strong immune stimulator, but also is con contains egg phospholipid protein and um, the castor oil. Then in the first day of life, the babies are given um, a hepatitis B vaccine, which also contains a not another dose of aluminum nanoparticle, as well as the polysorbate 80. And, um, you know, so here you have a child who's barely got a microbiome, barely has the, the microorganisms on the skin, in the lungs, in the nose to the lungs, in the mouth to the anus, that can help the baby deal with the uh, environment to digest and detox. And now you're injecting these materials into the body. The liver is a very immature liver. The kidney is a very poor filtrator. And we've never even evaluated, Steve, what happens to the materials once they're injected into the body, right? Does the aluminum stay in the body? Does it grab onto the cells? Does it go into the brain? Does it, does it attach anywhere? We just mightily assume, oh, but we're doing such a great thing to protect the child at day one of age against a disease that there's 0% chance of the child getting in probably the first 15 years of life. 
So th there's, there's a lot of concern about this. And unfortunately, my colleagues in pediatric medicine, when asked, um, you know, why are we giving hepatitis B vaccine to babies when their risk factors are, are zero? And they said, well, we have to. That's what we have to do. And so we've lost common sense. We've lost the ability to consider. And I remember in 1991, when the hepatitis B vaccine was first mandated for babies for the first day of life, I looked at my colleagues and I said, wait a second, polio vaccine came out because we were fighting a known infection in, in, in children and adults. Haemophilus influenza B vaccine came out because we were fighting a known disease in children. Right, diphtheria pertussis vaccines came out because there was a known disease that we were fighting. Hepatitis B illness is not a disease we need to fight in the pediatric population. The reason for the vaccine was to prevent the three to 5,000 deaths per year of people who were dying of chronic hepatitis B infection and liver cancer. But the studies showed that if you educated them, got them proper medical care, clean needles when they were using IV drugs and, and better nutrition, that you could lower the death rate of people who were dying of chronic liver failure or chronic liver cancer due to a chronic hepatitis B infection. So it was like, why are we giving this to a group of babies that are no risk for having the infection? Babies are not having sexual intercourse in the nursery or when they go home. They're not using needles and they're not being exchanged with blood products that raise the risk of them developing serious hepatitis B infection, most of which clear even when you have the uh, illness. So that was a little fishy and, and no one in the medical field spoke up enough to say, what, what are we doing? I mean, this, this, is, not, this is not medicine. This is not medicine. And in, you know, inflammation's really disease. I mean, it's just incredible that it's just from A to Z, there's, it's just upside down and backwards. So uh, I've heard you say, you know, this is the jab is not FDA approved and it's not actually vaccinating against the uh, disease that's going around that we're, that has a name. So can you explain if, you know, some people say this isn't so, so I believe it is. Can you explain that that in fact the you know the injection is not preventing uh, people from getting the disease? Are you talking about our current uh, state? Yeah. Of affairs? Okay. Yeah. So when people hear the word vaccine, Steve, they automatically think we're saved, we're rescued, we're taken care of. The authorities have our backs. We're good. I, I can relax now. You know, I, I, I feel so much better. And the problem is that there's no thought process in that. There's just an automatic download. They gave us a vaccine. Therefore, it is a vaccine. When in fact, if you look at the Moderna patent, it is described specifically as gene therapy. It's not described as a vaccine. And so in order for uh, an injection to qualify as a vaccine, it has to do most of the following things. One, 
it has to give you antibodies to a virus or bacteria that you're fighting against. This injection does not give you antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And I'll explain in a second. Two, it has to protect you from the disease of that virus or bacteria. And what most people are not aware of, even though it's in the, the literature, that just because you develop an antibody does not automatically equate to protection from disease. So, but this injection doesn't give you an antibody against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And it doesn't protect you from getting the illness of SARS-CoV-2 virus. And, and if anybody wants to argue with me on that, don't argue with me. The authorities actually said that, that we do not know if this will give you protection from disease of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's supposed to protect you from dying from the disease. And again, that has not been demonstrated at all. And the most important thing is that it's supposed to protect you from transmitting the germ from one person to the next. Now, so let's examine at least the Pfizer and the Moderna injections, because uh, those are the ones that are predominantly being used in, in the United States. So um, the Pfizer and Moderna injections contain a technology that has never before been used in vaccines ever. And so if it's never before been used to prevent against to, to give you antibodies against a, a virus or bacteria, to prevent against the getting the disease, to prevent death, or to stop the transmission of the germ, then how do we know that this technology is actually gonna do any of those things? But again, the, the, the common th uh, mind says, well, they say it's a vaccine, therefore it's going to do those things. And they've not done any of the testing to actually demonstrate that it would do those things. And it, it takes seven, 10, 15 years to actually study whether something works as a vaccine, whether it will give you antibodies to the virus or bacteria, whether it will give you protection from the virus or bacteria, whether it will prevent death, or whether it will stop the transmission of the germ. And I'm not even talking about safety yet, because that's a whole other layer that has also never been evaluated because not only is the technology new that has never been used as a successful vaccine to do any of those four things, but the chemicals and the technology have never been proven to be safe at all. There are new chemicals that are being injected into the body with these injections that have never been tested for safety upon human injection. And so we don't know what the outcomes would be. We don't know what's going to happen to the material. And we don't know where it's going to go. We don't know how it's going to give you short and or long-term effects. We do know that the people who were in the first phase one trial of the injection were actually warned not to have sexual intercourse within the first month after getting the injection. So my question is, what did they know that they're not telling us? All right. So we're using a new technology 
And it's a technology that actually inserts messenger RNA or the RNA material of a spike protein. Now, I'm going to go through this slowly. If you have any questions, just hang with me. The, the scientists saw that the SARS-CoV-2 virus has a spike protein that is, is the point of entry of the virus into the cells of the body. But what they found was, again, this is their story, not mine. They found was that the spike protein upon entry into the cell disintegrated. And so NIH said that scientists took that spike protein and stabilized it, which means it's a man-made protein. Spike protein was stabilized by scientists in order to make it patentable so that they can create vaccines. And I think the audience might want to know that it is not legal to patent anything that occurs in nature. So the scientists had to man make the spike protein to legally patent it in order to make it available for a vaccine. And so this is a synthetic spike protein that has been stabilized, it has been changed, and it is the messenger RNA for this spike protein that is being injected into the body. And so this messenger RNA gets inserted into the cells and in the cell process undergoes replication of a specific spike protein so that when the body sees the replication of the spike protein and knows that it's foreign, the body will produce an antibody against the spike protein that is being produced because of the delivery of the messenger RNA into the body. Now, nowhere have we shown that the body turns off the production of the spike protein. Even though you've heard experts say, oh, the messenger RNA doesn't continue. Well, there's no study to support that. That's just their opinion. But because it's they say, and we trust what they say, we walk around as experts saying, well, they said it, so therefore the messenger RNA doesn't keep reproducing. But we don't know that. So not only do we not know if the messenger RNA stops or continues producing spike protein, but therefore we don't know if antibodies to the spike protein turn off or turn on either. And that constant production of antibody is potentially lethal. And here's why. So we are being told that once we produce antibodies to the spike protein, that we're going to attack the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Well, remember something. This is a synthetic spike protein. So we don't know if the antibody that's being produced is going to specifically attack a SARS-CoV-2 virus. And we also don't know if it's going to attack anything else in the body. And there's already been evidence. And a Dr. Vojani, V-O-D-J-A-N-I, put out a nice study that showed that when he took 55 antigens in the body, 
and then cross-reacted it with the antibody produced against the spike protein, 28 of the 55 body antigens reacted from the antibody, which means in English, there are areas of the body that these antibodies are going to attack as if the body thinks, as if the antibodies think that those antigens in the body are SARS-CoV-2 virus. And some of the major areas that the antibodies are attacking are the mitochondria, which are the fuel centers of our cells, the liver, the heart, the brain, the lung, and the male and repro female reproductive system. So what you're seeing as an outcome of people getting these injections because they think they're going to be saved from an infection, which has never been proven and isn't specific to SARS-CoV-2, is massive numbers of people dying that are not being reported in the news. Massive number of people having very serious outcomes, neurological outcomes, uh, lung outcomes, blood clotting outcomes, heart outcomes, and then a growing number of women who are having miscarriages and who are having stillborns. And the, you know, and what I hear from people is, well, if that were true, they would be reporting it. And my answer to that is, if you were buying a car and the car manufacturer knew that the car gas tank blew up upon impact, Pinto. You think that the car manufacturer is going to report that to you so that you would know not to buy the car? You know, and again, it, it, it's just this adherence to the almighty word from the authority that says, well, if they say it, therefore it is. And I've heard people say, I believe everything Fauci says. I believe everything Bill Gates says. I believe everything Governor Cuomo says. I believe everything Governor Newsom says. Okay, um, I don't know how to approach that, but the bottom line is that we do not have an injection that's going to be protecting us against anything. And in fact, the safety around it is so, so seriously flawed that um, we're, we're actually starting to see that the antibodies to the spike protein are being transmitted in the saliva. And so if anybody is willing and interested in having sexual intercourse with anyone, I would first ask if they've gotten either of these uh, injections, because I would advise against having sexual intercourse with those people. Because we don't know what's being transferred. We really don't. And, and in fact, there's some evidence that there's more in this thing that is being listed on the package insert. Um, and uh, that's, that's it, it, it doesn't seem to bother people that the, um, that the injection uh, is being uh, authorized under emergency use only because the authorities are stopping us from knowing that this condition can be adequately treated and prevented with medications, nutraceuticals, supplements, 
and medical interventions other than the injection. So it's, it's fascinating to watch. And then the companies that are making this in these injections, these gene therapies, are not even liable for any damages. Wow, that's amazing. Wow, I, could, I have a lot more questions, but I'm going to pass it on to Hartman. Thank you very much for all that information. That's really important to know. Great. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Walewski, uh, yes, I had already, I had different uh, questions in my mind, um, but uh, yes, it's, it's again mind-blowing, although we already know a lot about this. For example, we had here a couple of times, we had Celeste Solomon on the, on the show. And uh, she and I asked her also concerning uh, sexual interaction, and uh, she said uh, probably there is a um, relation because uh, the virus is based on HIV. This was what she said. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then uh, there is a really um, very well. What's it's a very 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 tough topic. And what you said also concerning the many deaths. Yeah, if for example every flu. Uh, or the most cases of flu, natural flus, um, in the flu there is to one third a coronavirus itself mm -hmm. in a natural way. So, and the problem is, for example, if someone gets the vaccination, then after 45 minutes he is healthy, yeah, <laughs> and then he can go. And then uh, in the in the in the um, autumn he gets um, he gets a, a flu, a natural flu. And then the immune system doesn't know how to react anymore, and then and then there comes uh, to a re, uh, to a reaction, or there can come to a reaction uh, that there that there is an overreaction, and the and uh, the body may tilt. Right, that's what we call the cytokine storm. Right. Yeah, yeah. And um, but I want to come. I want to come back to a completely different topic. Great. <laughs> um, as you said. Um, that you like to to see how the spirit of the of the children is growing, how they experience the the uh, the their environment, etc. Um, in Germany, I'm I'm living close to the Alps, very close to the mountains, and I was um, a professional in in dowsing. For example, I was looking for water lines. If someone couldn't sleep, they called me, and I said, "Okay, you have to put the bed in this area, then you can sleep better." And the interesting thing is, um, if someone is sleeping on a water line, if someone has a, a cell phone directly on his body, there is a reaction field. Every 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 animal and every human being has this reaction field, and this is uh, maybe one meter, eighty centimeters long, and this is uh, the normal energy field. And if there is danger, it's it's double. Yeah, the people can you can you can feel this, and this is the whole body system is in alarm situation. And um, and I think a lot about children because, for example, they are now in a situation for for really not one year, which makes which is like a post-traumatic war syndrome. Yeah, the whole time they are in the stress, the brain-derived neurotrophic factor is decreasing because the hippocampus the whole stress. And the children have not the ability anymore to, let's say, to uh, to manage their daily life. They are depressed. The the parents are got freaked out because they know don't know what to do with the children. And uh, when are you when you said that the that the only target of vaccination is inflammation, I got the impression that there is a war against 
against the brain of the children because if you are in an alarm system, then the most people think with the cerebellum and you can only attack or you can run away. You cannot, you can never th think with the big brain. And do you have any comment about that? Well, sure. This is, this is part of uh, my, my talk on brain development that I love. Um, so when, when babies are born, the predominant action in the brain is the hindbrain. And more anatomically, it's the medulla, the cerebellum, and the pons. And for those science geeks, um, the medulla is the part of the brain that's responsible for fight or flight, danger, high alert, adrenaline, uh, excitement, impulsivity, um, reactivity, um, um, adre uh, high adrenaline, addiction, um, a pleasure, uh, I want, I have to have. And um, it, it's not a thinking brain. It's a very impulsive brain. It, it, it doesn't have the higher consciousness of making choices. It, it's usually subconscious activity. It's the burning building that you're running out of. It's the somebody's coming at me. Watch out, there's a, a, a bird coming to hit you in the head. So that's, that's, that's the major brain function when babies are born. And you can see it. You know, they, they, they need right away. They're hyper excitable. Um, their heart rates are high, their metabolic needs are high. Um, they're in a fight or flight state. They, they don't know that they exist. They only know that they are themselves in relation to the mother. Um, they don't see themselves as separate and they're helpless. And um, I think it's important to, to interject here that the mammalian brain is the most advanced brain out of the human brain is the most advanced brain of any mammalian. However, when babies are born, it is the least developed of any brain of any mammal because most brain development happens outside the womb. The other part of the hindbrain that's also hyperdynamic when babies are born is the cerebellum. And the cerebellum is responsible for movement um, and it's responsible for tone, coordination, balance, and strength. And we know that babies don't have much of that. And most of their movements are involuntary. You see that a baby is just, you know, reflexing all over the place, rooting, sucking. These are all primitive movements that are not based on anything voluntary. It's only about two to three months of age when a baby starts to develop some degree of voluntary movement. And you'll see that the hand starts to come in front of the body, you know, and they'll look at it. And then three to four months, they really start to try to move it out. And so it's the, it's the development of voluntary movements that allows for more development of the brain. And the midbrain is the next phase of brain development where a voluntary movement will give the baby an experience. It will give the baby an emotion, some kind of pain, pleasure, satisfaction, smile, uh, cry. And that, that part of development, once the baby starts that voluntary movement, and the midbrain starts to come online, you see that the baby will continue to do repetitive movements as a way to learn. So it's, I call it the hindbrain to midbrain development. Voluntary movement, you do something, you have an experience. Voluntary movement, you do something, you have an experience. And that's laying down major brain tracks from hindbrain to midbrain, hindbrain to midbrain. 
And then when the baby's six months old, grabbing and grabbing and transferring and then transferring again and bringing to the mouth and dropping and, and then the baby's crawling and then doing all these voluntary movements that allow for strengthening of the muscle tone, strengthening of coordination, strengthening of balance. And over and over again, the baby is doing things to develop midbrain, develop midbrain. And then little by little, after the baby has experiences, then there's a signal to develop front brain or forebrain uh, uh, conclusions. Because the forebrain is really where you think, you, you, uh, you conclude, you reason, you, you pay attention, you focus. And that part of the brain takes 28 years in men and maybe 30 years in women. I'm sorry, the other way around. 25 to 28 years in men and 28 to 30 years in women to fully develop, to fully you know, strengthen. So that's, that's a huge process of brain development. You do something, you have an experience, you come, up, come to a conclusion, you do it again, you have an experience, maybe you come to the same conclusion over and over again. And so little by little, the brain is supposed to reduce its adrenaline state so that the forebrain can come on board. So what's happening to kids, so all that is an introduction to what you so well described. What's happening to so many kids with hyperstimulation of information, hyperstimulation of instruction, hyperstimulation of teaching, hyperstimulation of, of their bodies just with machines and video games and, and just food and everything that's coming in is the hindbrain comes back on board as if the body is in danger. And so when the hindbrain is dominant, there is very little forebrain activity. And in order for the forebrain to come on board, in order for you to think, in order for you to consider, ponder, reason, be conscious, become aware, focus, pay attention, in order for you to conclude, analyze, you have to have a hindbrain that's quiet. You can't have a hyperadrenalized system. Because as long as you have a hyperadrenalized system, your hindbrain is running the show, which means that you are constantly in the belief that you're in danger. And I don't know anybody who's running out of a burning building trying to read Plato at the same time. And so what we're seeing is not only the injection of inflammatory material that really, really injures the cerebellum very early on, because it's a very sensitive area to toxins. And so when the cerebellum gets inflamed, there's a lot of major problems because all of motor development depends on a healthy cerebellum. So when you start to see low tone, when you start to see delayed motor movements, when you start to see delayed speech, because speech is built on a motor system, you have to know that your cerebellum is still in a primitive state of hyperadrenalism, hyperadrenals, hyperadrenaline, full of inflammation and maybe even injury that may or may not be reversible. 
And so we are, we are regressing our human brain. We are degressing to a more primitive uh, creature. As long as we are creating more hindbrain dominance. And what do we do? How do we do that? We do that with toxins that we inhale. We do that with toxins we inject. We do that with um, foods that we are eating that are not foods, with the chemicals that are in foods. We do that with the constant stimulation of the video games, which goes right to the cerebellum because it, it triggers the eye centers. And the eye centers are also eye movements and they depend on the cerebellum. And when the eyes are dilated and you're moving really rapidly, it sends a signal to your cerebellum that you're in danger. And even after you get up from the chair, you're still having hyperstimulation of your cerebellum for maybe minutes to hours. And you see kids who are irritable, who are, who are in rage after they're on these machines because you're, de you're, di you're digressing in the brain. You're actually reversing brain function back to a more primitive state. And for those who are interested, the hindbrain is also the primitive brain or the reptilian brain. And so we are exposing children when the brain is rapidly developing to major factors that cause inflammation and their sustained inflammation. And so of course they can't sleep. And then when they can't sleep, you increase the hyperadrenalism state again. And there's there, then you have greater inflammation and it just lops off the front brain. So they're not going to be able to learn and they're not going to be able to have a conversation. Then put a mask on them and reduce their oxygen. And then put a mask on them and reduce their ability to pick up social cues. Because children learn language and learn emotions by looking at the face and now we're taking that away so we're really removing brain development at every step of the way to create rather primitive brains and um and the interesting thing is um there is this ex-kgb agent yuri betsmenov who um came to the us in 1970s And in 1968, in 86, he made a very good uh, presentation about uh, the changing of um, society uh, by demoralization. Uh, I saw that. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, if the brain is still in the field of danger, then you demoralize, demoralize the whole time this human being. Correct. And in that moment the people of this human being has not the chance to understand the difference between the truth and the lie. Correct. And um, Correct, because you lose, you lose the capacity to critically think. And so you're at the mercy of your authority who has to do it for you. Because once you're in fear, because that's what happens when the hindbrain is so active, you're in a constant state of fear. And so you, you're going to give up your authority to someone that you have to trust because you can't do the work yourself. It's a brilliant propaganda. You're correct. And do you have any recommendation 
For example, many people are now in a lockdown for one year. And what they don't realize is they, uh, they cannot live their daily life anymore, also the children, because it's a, it's a, chemical, it's a chemical process. The BNDF protein, which is very important for the development of the brain, and also for, for us in order to manage the normal life, it reduces immediately. Uh, and um, do you have any suggestion how you can increase it? Because uh, it's very it's not easy to increase it. Right. I think um, I think we we must state the obvious that we are in a, a war. We are in a world war. And um, sometimes when you're in a war. Um, there are war da damages. And, you know, we're trying to recover or improve states of our brain development, states of our immune system during times when um, we may not be able to, right? W we may lose a year or more of our hearts and our minds and, um, you know, the, the other side of this is also the, the hope that we can create connection between ourselves and we can improve connection. And, and that's one of the things that I try to teach in the office is there's a difference between attention and connection. And so to try to uh, teach parents that um, children and, and each other we need acknowledgement, we need understanding, we need empathy, we need compassion. We need to be able to say, yeah, I know, this is really hard, instead of trying to fix it. You know, when you look at the men are from Mars, women are from Venus model of, you know, when, when, when you know, men are built to fix and solve and make better and, and rescue, and all women want is for you to sit there and listen and support and just be there. And I think that um, we need a little less of the saving, rescuing, fixing, and making better. And we need a little more of the support and the compassion and to listen and just say, yeah, this is tough. I understand it. Life is changing. We are having, a, we are having trouble. We are having things taken away from us. We are challenged to do the best that we can. How can we come up with creative ways to maintain connection? Um, some of the things that we used to do in our daily lives, maybe it's good that we're not doing them anymore. Maybe this is giving us a greater connection to a consciousness that strengthens our, our resolve to, to go within and to really find our connection to ourselves, to each other, to a higher power, so that, so that we know that we're safe even when we don't see safety around us. We know that even if we die, we don't die, you know, that, that there is a greater power because everything that's happening around us is an attempt to take away our connection to a higher power. It's to take away our resolve. It's to take away our connection from each other. And so we must, we must, we must strengthen our own inner connection to our, to our higher power and create connection even greater.
understanding, compassion, and love amongst each other. Um, I want to share some tricks which which I learned. Great. And, um, for example, the 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 problem is concerning um, the the brain function is also that it's related to the jaw because in the jaw there is a lot of stress. Yeah. And and the jaw uh, is connected to the sphenoid bone. The sphenoid bone is here in this area. And if we are shocked, or if we have, um, or every time where we st stand up, the sphenoid bone is not at the right position. And I had, I found a doctor of chemistry who who has examined this for his wife. And when he saw my sphenoid bone, he said, "You have you have the intention of doing suicide, because I was so stressed in this area." And then he uh, adjusted the sphenoid bone. This adjusts the jaw, and this goes down the complete spine. And then it was quite relaxed, yeah. And this is uh, because if the sphenoid bone is not in the right position, then the upper and lower jaw have there is a difference. Correct. And if you bite on on both, then you 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 have the right you don't you don't have the right um, position. And if you adjust this, then it's it's, it's better and, so and that the people can that they understand. Okay, if, if it sounds weird, but uh, this man said this. Um, that if the sphenoid bone is not in the right position, it can result in, in suicide thoughts. Correct. But not everybody has access to someone who's an osteopath or a craniosacral therapist or a chiropractor or someone who can do manual manipulation. Um, um, but the, there, you can also reset the sphenoid bone just by proper breath work, by, by relaxing the jaw, lowering shoulders, rocking the pelvis when we breathe and opening up the chest. And that will create the kind of kundalini of flow that could craniosacrally just reset some of the connective tissue around the sphenoid bone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I, I pass it to, to Mary. <laughs> and Grace, I'll, I'll go for another half hour. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Plevsky, for this great discussion. And I have so many questions. Also, <laughs> so many you know, interesting things we talked about, like what else is really in the, I'll call it the, the jab that people are getting besides what's listed in the package insert. And, you know, we you talked about in the saliva, like the antibodies could be transferred. And then, you know, what is that going to do to people then um, who are, are then getting it and kind of your pro projection on where you see this all going. And I don't know if you want to get an, into any more as to what is really behind this and, you know, why are, you know, we, we're giving this uh, in, injection that, that we don't have the long-term studies on the safety and the efficacy. Um, and, I, you know, anything you want to speak to about that? Yeah. Um So the two, there are two, two chemicals that are listed on the package insert that are also being injected in the Pfizer and the Moderna, uh, um, or, or at least the Pfizer. One is the polyethylene glycol, and the other one is the lipid nanoparticle. And the polyethylene glycol has never been tested before for use of an injection uh, with any, in, any shot ever. And so it's brand new. So we have no safety data on whether or not it's safe. And 
the reported reason that it's in there is to is to encapsulate the mRNA and protect it from being chewed up or destroyed in the body before it gets inside the cells. And the the thing is, is that we we don't know where that polyethylene glycol takes the mRNA. We don't even know if it actually delivers it just into the cell or if it actually delivers any of it into the nucleus of the cell, which is where our genetics, uh, where our chromosomes reside. The other thing that's supposed to be around the polyethylene glycol, which again, has been known to be uh, a contributor to anaphylaxis when injected into the body, um, is a lipid nanoparticle. And a lipid nanoparticle is basically a fatty particle that is so tiny that it can pass through any cell of the body, regardless of whether or not the cell has a protective mechanism to keep it out. And if you, if you just read about lipid nanoparticles and as injections into the body, the literature has a number of articles just explaining how lipid nanoparticles injected into the body can impair different functions of the body. Brain, lung, liver, kidney, and male and female reproductive systems. And so what essentially happens is whatever is in the injection that's attached to the lipid nanoparticle, which includes the polyethylene glycol and the messenger RNA, can essentially go into any cell anywhere in the body. And then the question is, well, what does it do inside the cell once it gets there? And there are no data, but there are enough data to show that these organ systems can and will be impaired when lipid nanoparticles are injected into the body. And so how people are okay with that is anybody's guess. But uh, there's more evidence of potential destruction of the human body from this than there is any evidence that it's going to protect you from any illness at all. Um, why is this happening? Um, well, I'm, I'm not privy to the specific um, uh, intentions of those who are pushing the injection, but it does seem like, like there is a belief that this injection is a passport to freedom, even though we're being told that if you get the injection, you still have to wear a mask and social distance which of course still makes no sense medically. Um, but the, the problem is that um, there, there seems to be a greater darkness around what the intentions are with this injection, especially since it doesn't demonstrate that it will give you antibodies against a virus. It'll give you antibodies against a spike protein, but that's not proof that it'll give you uh, antibodies against the virus. It's not been shown to protect you from getting the illness from the virus. And it's not been shown to cause a lowering of death. And it's not been shown to stop the transmission of the virus from one person to the next. So where this is headed, um, 
if anybody's awake, they can see that this is headed towards um, a global uh, takeover, um, an attempt to control all movement of people, all freedoms of people from some very central place, wherever that might be, um, and to dictate uh, where you can go, who you can see, when you can go, how often you can go, um, what job you can have, what restaurant you can go in, uh, etc. So I, I think we're we're seeing a removal of freedoms, we're seeing a removal of dialogue and discourse, we're seeing a removal of um, of people's uh, ability to speak truth, we're seeing censorship. Uh, we're seeing killings, we're seeing destruction, uh, we're seeing deplatforming, we're seeing um, this, uh, this intention to create one narrative and one narrative only. And uh, I don't know if anybody's awake uh, how, how they can say that that's okay in any, in any free society. Exactly. We're moving so much further from just basic freedoms. And you know, I saw an article earlier today talking about make sure you keep your um, the, the card for the jab because it might be your entry in the future to getting back to normalcy. Sure. And so, you know, so many people, I think you, know, you gave that great description of the brain and how it works. And so many people are stuck in that fear state. So they're they're not able to logically process and and to think and really decide and make an informed choice, you know, on what they're going to do for for their health. But I know, right. you know, we're we are all here really, you know, value freedoms and we want to, you know, do what we can and help other people to maintain their health freedoms. Um, what would be the best thing for people like that that they can do to, you know, get together with like-minded people to help to make a difference to keep our health freedoms? Okay, so I just want to add one thing to what you just said because it. It triggered such a great point. When people stay in their fear state, they cannot even consider that they may actually not know something or that they may be wrong or that there's some uncertainty to what is going on. So when you're in that hindbrain, when you're in that, in that fear state, you are certain that what you're being told is true. And so what we need is, is people's ability to go, huh, I wonder what else is going on here. Or, huh, I wonder if there's a way I can consider other information. Or, hmm, I wonder if I'm being told everything that there is. And, huh, I heard that person died after the jab. Uh, they said it's not from the jab. But, you know, that, I wonder if it is. Huh, a healthy five-month-old baby was being breastfed and the mother got the second uh, shot, and within uh, 24 to 48 hours, the baby was dead from a disease that babies don't get spontaneously. I wonder if it was from the jab that the mother got and then transmitted in through the breast milk to the baby. Those are the things that we need. Um, we also need people to start um, congregating to having um, discussions in, in their homes. Uh, there's a great website called Make Americans Free Again. 
Make Americans Free Again. Uh, Dr. Pam Popper is heading that up um, to try to create the kinds of appropriate uh, lawsuits um, in order for in order for us to start bringing the truth to the court systems, knowing full well that the court systems may not be on our side, but all we need is one or two courts to actually side with the truth for us to create the kind of uh, um, a domino effect to get people to wake up to the truth. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's time for people who, who are in favor of freedom to stand for freedom. So there's, there's Make Americans Free Again. There's StandForHealthFreedom.com. There's NVIC.org. There's uh, GreenMedInfo.com. These are all avenues in which people can, can uh, make their voices known and, and participate um, so, that, so that they can start getting active. Um, there are lawsuits that are potentially happening all over the country. Uh, Pam Popper at Make Americans Free Again can help with that. Stand for Health Freedom has a campaign to create more um, activity around the country so people can get involved there. Thank you. Sorry, Jane, I thought um, you were going to jump in next. I was just making sure you're okay. Mm -hmm. Hey, so good to have you. I'm a naturopathic doctor from Canada. And uh, just as a disclaimer, we've been told by our board that we can't speak for or against vaccines. So I I'm, I wouldn't mind you commenting on that. But I wanted to quickly comment as a mother and as I see a programming that's happened over the last probably 50 to 70 years. But, you know, when my twins were born and I, I wasn't a naturopath at the time, my instinct when I was told I should vaccinate was to save my child. And I took them at three months to get vaccinated. And I was also enrolling at the same time to become a naturopathic doctor. So after that vaccine, and I saw how horrified they were as young spir as spirits, I could see the horror and the shock. And I decided to rethink what I was doing. And as a naturopath, I believe in pro-choice. I believe in do no harm. I believe in teacher or physician be teacher. I believe in um, all these things. But as a mother, I decided to take um, self-responsibility and learn as much as I could about what I was doing. And as I learned, I realized that most, most childhood diseases were already, uh, could do, do, did very little harm through good food, hygiene, and support of the immune system. So it made no sense for me to jab my child when they were young. And I realized that these childhood diseases were meant to train the immune system. And then as I became a homeopath, I, I thought, well, is there a safer way to make people immune to diseases? Maybe we can do it through homeopathy. 
And again, I realized that, that these things that appear to be so deadly, what they make to appear so deadly actually trained the immune system and helped the person function and were an important part of our growth and becoming um, strong and capable and that they're all around us. And as I've, as I've learned as a naturopath, I've learned that perhaps there aren't even, there isn't even something called a virus, that it's never been isolated. And so <laughs> I've also seen- Jane, keep going, I'll just watch. I've also seen how I, I study as a homeopath. And one of the things I study is how we are programmed from the time we were young to the time we're, you know, at least seven, completely programmed. And so we're taught to do things that, you know, without question or to give away our power. And, and so I, and now I can see how, how over the last 70 years we've been programmed to be very afraid of disease and to think of these things as our as our savior without looking deeper can you comment on that oh wow we only have 15 minutes yeah go. That was so beautifully said because there there's so many pearls in what you said that i'm going to try and pick out the ones that that i think we can cover in the next 15 minutes um so number one is the field of naturopathy is moving closer and closer to Western medicine and further and further away from the principles of naturopathy upon which the field was founded way, way long ago. And I have colleagues who are naturopathic physicians who are crying and lamenting at the loss of principles of naturopathy because of the the need and the willingness to become uh, licensed and approved by the almighty Western medical system. And so um, I'm very cautious when I see the truth being pushed aside at the expense, but the, in, in favor of a desire for something other than the truth. And so it saddens me to hear that there's no, that they're actually putting down the, the gauntlet and saying, you can't talk about this, which means uh, you're not free anymore to have a discussion. You now have to kiss the papal ring and do as we say. And, and I, think, I think for those naturopathic physicians who adhere to the, the core principles of naturopathy, kudos to you and um, for those who are diluting the field of naturopathy to become more accepted and licensed and more uh, able to sit at the table, um, you're, you're threatening yourselves as individuals and you're threatening your field as, as a, a beautiful field that has major, major capacity to heal and help people. The other thing is that uh, you described something that has been lost in our culture, which is I had an intuition, I had an experience, and I came to a different conclusion 
from what it was that I was told was true. And in, in several of my talks over the last year, I have spoken about the fact that there are three ways in which we know things. We know things because we just know it. We intuit it. It feels the information comes from the core. It comes from the subconscious. It comes from the, the body speaking to us when the cells of our body know things that the mind has yet to know about. The second way is we, we do trial and error. We observe, we have experiments, we discover, we, we examine, we research, we, we go through the process of learning to come to conclusions, to know things. And the third way of knowing things is when people tell us what we need to know and we just take it in. And what I have found over the years is that the first and second ways of knowing have been not slowly, but rather rapidly diminished and removed from our beings. And all that's left is what we are served from the outside. And what you spoke to is what we need to resurrect, which is the way of knowing from the intuitive and from the experiential that is more real than any authority and comes from a much higher and stronger place than any person <coughs> or body outside can deliver to us. Um, the, the fact that we give, we give injections for one of several reasons. I'm gonna repeat some of what I said, but I'm gonna add another one to answer another point that you raised. We give injections because we wanna protect against disease. We wanna give antibodies against those diseases. We wanna prevent death and we wanna prevent transmission of those germs. M much of those statements can be debated rather scientifically and flaws in those statements can easily be found even though we are forebrained, we are given those sets of points as rules without question. But they can be questioned, they should be questioned, and they actually may show major flaws. But one of the major reasons we give vaccines is because we are taught that if you don't see the disease of that germ in society, the germ doesn't exist in your body. And that the only way for that germ to exist in your body is if someone who's sick comes along and gives it to you. And so that in order to preempt someone coming along in society who is actively sick from that disease, from giving you the disease, we're going to preempt that exposure by injecting either an antigen associated with the bacteria or virus, a dead killed virus, or actually a live attenuated virus, so that you're gonna have knowledge and exposure to those organisms before someone could possibly give them to you. And that statement is so flawed 
And we must start speaking about it because the belief is that if you don't have a measles infection around you, the measles virus isn't here. And it will only get here if someone sick gives it to you. And if you don't see a pertussis illness around you, the bacteria that cause pertussis illness are not in your airway because no one sick has given it to you. Because there's this belief that the 42 or so bacteria and viruses that we vaccinate against aren't already in your body because we've either pushed them out of society by giving you vaccines, which has never been proven, or we're going to prevent you from being sick from it if someone who hasn't been vaccinated possibly brings it to you and exposes you to it. So let's take a step back from that. It's asinine because we forget the science of the body. What does the science of the body say? We have hundreds of trillions of bacteria lining our body from nose to lungs, mouth to anus, all over the skin and in the women's reproductive systems. And they get there because we live, because we breathe, because we eat, and because we touch. And we don't have to be near people for those trillions of organisms to become part of our linings of our bodies. So the fact of the matter is exposure to organism, bacteria, can happen without exposure to people. And exposure to organisms like the bacteria can happen without you getting sick. And you can brush your teeth and get the bacteria into your bloodstream. You can eat and get the bacteria into your bloodstream. You can rub your skin and get the bacteria into your bloodstream. You can pick your nose and, and get the bacteria into your bloodstream. You can wipe your behinds and get the bacteria into your bloodstreams. You can have sexual intercourse and get the bacteria into your bloodstreams and nothing happens almost 100% of the time because exposure to bacteria is simply not sufficient to create disease. Viruses are completely another story. And yes, there's a lot of debate about whether viruses actually exist or not, but let's go on what we know. Viruses are not live organisms. They could never be live organisms because they can't replicate themselves. Viruses can only become more viruses if they're embedded in the genetic machinery of a cell, whether it's a plant cell, an animal cell, a bacterial cell, or a human cell. And the only way that viruses can be turned on and turned off is if they are epigenetically affected, meaning there must be an outside force that triggers their DNA or RNA to be turned on to make viruses. And what does the literature say about viruses? The literature says that the human body has probably upwards of 400 trillion viruses embedded inside our body in our cells, in our DNA, in our chromosomes, 
in our mitochondria and in the hundreds of trillions of bacteria that are lining our body. And so this idea that the only way to be exposed to a virus is to be exposed to someone who's sick, who gives it to you, is primitive, incorrect, and false. It must be redialogued because we are viraling all the time. We are viraling all the time. We are having viruses replicating inside our cells, on the linings of our bodies, in our bloodstream, on a constant basis. And so viruses are not necessarily going to hurt us. In fact, most of the time, the bacteria and the viruses that are lining our body are helping our bodies to stay well, to function, to maintain homeostasis, and to remove wastes. So this idea of injecting you with a piece of a virus or bacteria, a dead virus, or an attenuated live virus, because you have yet to be exposed to it, because the only way for you to be exposed to it is from someone who's sick, is completely wrong. And if anything, what it does is it may increase the potential for autoimmune disease, which is skyrocketing in our population. Because if we already have the genetic material of these viruses and bacteria embedded in our body, and our immune systems have said, we are safe with you as bacteria and viruses. And now you're creating an antagonistic reaction whereby the immune system sees that genetic material of the bacteria and viruses and creates an immune response against it. Then we're gonna create our anti-DNA antibodies. Then we're gonna create our anti-muscle antibodies. Then we're gonna create our anti-blood antibodies. And then we're gonna create our anti-joint antibodies. And that's how we're going to develop our autoimmune diseases. It's happening with the COVID jab and it's happening with all of the injections that we are using. This is a topic that I have never heard anybody else talk about other than me. This idea that we will expose the human body to a piece of the organism because we don't believe you have the organism yet is incorrect. We must start changing the dialogue, because this isn't my information. This is right in the science and it's obvious and it's real and it needs to be put forth. Thanks for bringing all that up, Dr. Jane. Thank you, brilliantly said. Thank you so much. Dr. Palewski, um, we are so thankful for your presence and uh, our viewers and the audience, they're just expressing. So thank you so much for this conversation. That's what they said. And of course they said, I like listening to his voice. <laughs> so, and of course that includes the, everything that you say, but it's just, so they're empowered. And I just encourage all of you, if you're a parent and you know someone, and if you wanna be a parent someday and you also know people, please share this live stream. And uh, Dr. Palevsky, please tell them again, where can they reach you or any more links that you want to share and what are your upcoming plans that you want to Great. you know, let them know? 
Well, thank you for inviting me and for sharing in this conversation. Um, I feel like we could go for hours because there's so much information to share, but I appreciate uh, the questions and your participation and inviting me. I wanna thank the viewers who are listening live and for those who are going to, to see this on the other side of the live stream. Um, my website is Dr. Pilevsky or Dr. Pilevsky, P-A-L-E-V-S-K-Y dot com. Uh, I can also be found at the Northport Wellness Center dot com. I have an Instagram account at Dr. Pilevsky, the same way it's spelt uh, for my website. Um, please note that I have a number of videos and uh, interviews that I've done. Uh, there's a new documentary that I just uh, participated in called um, COVID-19 Exposed, and uh, it, it can be found at Jason Shurka, J-A-S-O-N-S-H-U-R-K-A.com forward slash censored. And uh, some of the information I discussed today can be found in that documentary. And, um, you know, the, the goal is to keep bringing the, the light to the truth and to uh, invite people on the journey and discover uh, new information, to be able to critically think, to open up your hearts, to open up your minds, to um, to access your abilities to love and, and to uh, create community and connection and to reduce the level of fear that you're living with and, uh, and start Start using your powers of intuition and experience to, to learn and grow and know. So thank you. And Dr. Polevsky, please let this be not the, the last one. We welcome you to come back again. We welcome you to come and bring your whole team. We'll see how we'll accommodate. Please keep using us. That's what our platform is here for. Right. Okay. And Great. we have to invite um, the viewers, please join us again next Tuesday. Next Tuesday, we'll have Dr. Tikel, and he's all the way from Australia. And he'll he'll speak on his favorite topic for uh, everyone else, love, sex, marriage, and fish. I think that's the title. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I say in my language, mabalos. And that means thank you. Thank you very much. It was a Thanks, real Dr. pleasure, Dr. real honor. Thank you, sir. Thank you.